dog bless you all. May dog lick your face and smother you in omniscient, omnipotent and omnipresent saliva. If you're a brand new listener, don't start with this episode. Consider going back to the start of the podcast or choose some earlier episodes. Embark on the same journey that everyone else has to get to this point. But don't like just take it from here. It is July 2020. Which means that in Ireland now, we're almost fully out of coronavirus lockdown. The goblin of strange and uncertain times is somewhere off in the distance. He's not gone away. He's distracted. He is rummaging through a bush for some old yellowed pornography. But it's important to remind ourselves that the goblin of strange and uncertain times is in the distance looking for pornography in a bush because we've all done a really, really good job at distracting him. Keeping coronavirus at bay by obeying the rules. So as we return now into society, just remind ourselves it's not gone. It could come back as aggressively and we have to make sure that we're not taking the piss. All right? Just wear a face mask. That's all I'm asking you. Because no one's doing it. I'm sorry to say it, lads. In Limerick anyway, nobody's wearing masks. And you got to wear a mask. Think of the other person. When when someone who's, who's vulnerable wears a mask and you step into the shopping centre or into the restaurant not wearing a mask, you have now negated their efforts, which is quite unfair, isn't it? So wear a mask, do it for other people, and if we all do it, it's... Do you know, do you know how it was, it was explained to me? So, if two people are wearing a simple cotton face covering, underpants for the face, as I say, if two people are doing this, then the chances of contracting coronavirus, the chances of contracting it, they go to about between 30 and 15%. So, you can reduce... If two people are wearing masks, you can reduce the chances of contracting coronavirus by 60% onwards. If there was a pill that we could take that reduced your chance of contracting coronavirus by upwards of 60%, we'd all be taking it. There isn't a pill, but what there is is you wear a mask, I wear a mask, and we're grand. Simple, just keep the spit inside your body. I just felt the responsibility to say it. There's too many people listening, right? Um, but anyway, yeah, it's it's nice to see a bit of fucking normality. It's I like I like seeing I like seeing this sounds so contradictory, but I, I like seeing fucking traffic jams around Limerick. I like seeing go- people going to shops because I know that it it's just it's good to see the economy working again and to see money being pumped into it. It just makes me feel good because recessions are no crack. So it's nice to see that. I'm going to a restaurant tomorrow night. I have a restaurant booked. I get 90 minutes. I'm going to have a lovely, slow meal. I'm going to enjoy every fucking second of it. I haven't been to a restaurant in three months. I'm going to enjoy every second of it. I'm going to savour every bite. I'm going to mindfully reflect on and, and, and what I had taken for granted 
and truly appreciate my meal and I'm going to get a pint, just one pint, I'm not going on the lash. I want one pint that is poured from a tap of possibly something like Moretti or San Miguel and I'm going to appreciate every sip. This is what you get to do for yourself now that the Goblin of Strange and Uncertain Times is off in the distance rummaging for some yellowed pornography in a bush. Alright? This is what you get to do. As you re-enter society and you've had three months of freedoms taken away from you, reflect on how you might have taken these things for granted and really mindfully consume them. Something as simple as walking into a shop. Getting a haircut. Because it's... There's the little mental health benefit. For the next few days, we won't be on autopilot anymore. Everything that we once took for granted is now a novelty. Do you know? And within that novelty is the opportunity for slow, mindful reflection. Taking it all in. So that that's a positive. That's a definite positive. I've been having great crack on Twitch this week. Alright. I've been streaming, live streaming on Twitch. I've no gigs. I don't know when my next gigs are going to be. But I'm having fun on fucking Twitch. I'll tell you that. It has... What I miss about doing gigs is connection with an audience. When I was doing gigs, I get to go somewhere. There's a lot of people there. There's questions at the end. Sometimes I meet people. I really miss it. I really do miss it. But on Twitch, it's the closest thing without actual human contact. So, I think I went on Twitch five nights this week. Playing video games. One day, on Sunday evening at like three o'clock, I just turned on Twitch, didn't play any video games. And just chatted to people. Just did a live stream and me just chatting. Drank a cup of tea. Did it for about an hour and a half and had lovely chats and spoke about a lot of things. It was like... It was podcast hug. It was podcast hug, but live. And then other days I'm playing music. I'm writing live music. I'm really fucking loving it. Really enjoying it. So twitch.tv forward slash the blind by podcast. Um, if you're wondering what I'm doing, it's it's live streaming. So it's like... It's it's like live TV. It's it's completely live. But I've got... Pr- it's not like Instagram live where it's someone chatting into their phone. I have a proper studio set up with a decent camera and decent audio. The audio would be as good as this podcast. I can play video games. I can make music live. It's a proper live platform and you can chat with me. If you're in the comments, you can say, what's the crack blind boy? And I might see your comment and I can chat with you in real time. And the community on Twitch is lovely as well. I also actually, yeah. So I also streamed to Facebook and YouTube. Because I was trying to get the vibe of... Because I'm new to streaming. So I was like, should I stick with Twitch? Or, like, I've got a Facebook page with 500,000 people. The Rubber Bandits Facebook page. YouTube page with about 100,000 subscribers. I was like, let's fucking see what the crack is. It wasn't as much fun as Twitch. The people on Facebook were just like, what the fuck is this? Because these are people who might have joined the Facebook for Horse Outside in 2011. So a lot of them were like, what is this? What are you doing? Um, there wasn't any negativity, which is nice. No one said anything mean. That was nice. YouTube, actually. There was some mean comments on YouTube. 
because that there's a lot of anonymity in, in YouTube. But doing the live streaming on YouTube and on Facebook made me realise that Twitch is where I want to stay because it's got a very supportive, nice community and a culture of um, not being a prick, basically. So join, join Twitch. It's free. Join Twitch and subscribe to me, twitch.tv, the for, forward slash the blind by podcast. And I'm usually on at generally half nine Wednesday, Thursday, Fridays. But I think now I kind of just go on randomly too. So what I'd say is once you join Twitch, if, if you are subscribed to me, you get a little notification whenever I go online. And it's good fun. So what I'd like to talk about this week is, it's kind of a hot take. It's like a historical hot take. It, no, it's hot take territory. It's, it's not a mad theory, but rather a very queer and interesting fact and something that I assumed the media or commentators would look at in light of recent events, but I didn't see anyone fucking doing it. So the question I'm asking for this podcast and that I hope to answer by the end of it is in in 2008 Barack Obama removed a statue from the Oval Office and sent it back to Britain where it came from and it caused a great deal of embarrassment for Britain and I'm going to explore that and try and answer that for this podcast. And I haven't seen anyone mention this in the news recently, which is incredibly odd to me. Um, So I'm like, right, okay, i got to do a podcast about this. So I want to speak about something in the context of recent events of the past three weeks. So we've seen a lot of social upheaval in 2020. Um, The Black Lives Matter protests... And then the tail end of the Black Lives Matter protests. Originating, I think, in Britain. I could be wrong there. But the removal of statues. Okay? Um, One example. Look, you'd have seen it in the news. In Bristol, for instance, there was a statue of a merchant called Edward Colston. Which was torn down by Black Lives Matter protesters. And it was fucked into into the river. Because Edward Colston... His statue was there because he was a quote-unquote merchant, right, from the fucking eighteen or uh, 1700s, was it? He was a merchant from the 1700s, and his statue was there because it's a statue to capitalism, a statue to prosperity. But the man was a slave trader. He made his money from the slave trade. A lot of countries like Britain, Portugal, Spain, their great massive wealth comes from stealing the resources... ...from uh, other countries... ...and also stealing the people of those countries. And Colston was a slave trader... ...so in light of... ...the Black Lives Matter movement... ...the anger expressed itself as... ...let's take down the icons of slavery... ...so they ripped down the statue... ...fucked it into the river... ...fair play to him... ...I agree with it. And this is known as... ...iconoclasm... ...right... ...the, the specific general term for taking down statues or paintings is called iconoclasm and it's a general it's a belief that you you take like you take down icons if a system of power is in place 
you remove the visual representation of that power as a symbolic act. And what an icon is, an icon is, could be a statue, could be a painting, could be a sign. An icon is usually a symbol of power. Ultimately what it is, is I would refer to it as a visual legitimization of power. Um, If you've listened to any of my art podcasts, I speak about... You know, the, the, the importance of, th- throughout the history of, of art of the past 1,000 years, the importance of patrons of the art, right? Often, painters in the 1500s, 1600s, the Renaissance, whatever, wealthy painters, they were allowed to become artists and sculptors because they were funded by patrons, and those patrons were one of two things. Usually, the church... Are wealthy merchants and the merchants and the church were interested in patronizing artists so that these artists would return for payment icons okay when you paint when fucking Michelangelo does the Sistine Chapel that's an icon for the power of and supremacy and legitimacy of Christianity whoever made that statue of Edward Colston in Bristol it's legitimising an artist had to make that and I don't know who patronised that artist but somebody with a vested interest in legitimising slavery and colonialism at the time had the Edward Colston statue made as an icon of this is okay if at the time you're wondering Jesus, there's a lot of wealth around here in Bristol. All these ships coming in, going to far parts of the world. And all this gold, you're just like taking that from Africa. Yeah, you're just taking it. You're just saying that like Africa's yours. And all this gold and copper, you can just take that, yeah? And what about all these people, these these African people that you have in chains and are bringing to America and then there's a bunch of cotton coming back? That doesn't seem very right to me. That does, that kind of, it kind of seems a bit wrong. So the merchants then go, ah, we need an icon. So here's a statue of Edward Colston to legitimise what you think is evil. And it's like, but he's got a statue. There's a fucking statue. He looks class. How could this be wrong? It can't be wrong. An icon exists. And another way to look at icons is they form part of what's known as the ideological state apparatus, which I've mentioned many times before. The The philosopher... The Marxist philosopher, Althusser, had a theory on power and society that power structures in society are maintained by a repressive state, repressive state apparatuses and ideological state apparatuses. So the power structure is generally very wealthy people, capitalists, and then the people whose labour is exploited for that wealth the work, the mass, massive working classes who are poor, and their labour is needed. Their mass labour is needed to keep a small few wealthy, and the small few have to convince and cajole and coerce the larger working classes into agreeing into this system, whereby their labour creates wealth for a small few, and 
So the repressive state apparatuses are the more, more obvious ones. Police, judges, courts, laws. Okay. Um, I mean, workers' rights are quite a recent thing, but if you tried to go on... If you tried to go on strike in 1860s, there's a good chance that the factory owner would have a, a private militia to shoot you. Do you know what I mean? Workers' rights and the right to strike and unionise, these things had to be earned in a very bloody fashion. The repressive state apparatus was loosened slightly to give people the right to a fucking a five-day week or to not have to work 24 hours a day or to keep actual toddlers out of the workforce. These things had to be achieved through blood. And then you've got the ideological state apparatus, which is the beliefs that a society kind of has about itself in order to maintain a power structure. It's it's a form of psychological control. When you see police, when you see the army, when you see judges, you see the courts, these are very obvious gatekeepers of a belief system. That's very obvious. There's a policeman. He uh, enforces the law. There's a judge. There's a a legislator. They make up the law. And the laws tend to benefit the very wealthy. Okay? Or the people who own property. But an ideological state apparatus is more unseen. It's the, the philosophies and psychology of how a society feels about itself. But as dictated, <coughs> dictated by religion uh, the, sc- the education system and the media but also iconography statues of slave traders being put forth as wealthy merchants are you know Christ up on the cross as an icon of this is Christianity this is legitimate and you must follow these rules or there will be consequences that's what icons do. And iconoclasm is the belief that when you destroy these icons, you actually can change the system in some way. Now, there's two ways of looking at it. It's y- yes and no. The problem is sometimes with iconoclasm is that you can take down the statues and then people feel like that symbolic... People feel that the symbolic justice of taking down a statue is is change, and it's like it's not that symbolic change. Is real change going to come from that? Here's a perfect example. I think, like, have you noticed that they're taking down loads of Netflix episodes that have examples of, of blackface in it, or they were trying to take down old episodes of Faulty Towers and all this shit? I think that is an attempt... To keep people happy. It's that symbolic iconoclasm. It's symbolic iconoclasm. Removing the power of, of icons. A gesture to show that. A blackface is no longer acceptable. So we remove these episodes. But. Where's the structural change that goes along with it? Is it a bit of. Is it hoodwinking? Is it just performatively. Appearing to. Change things. Or is act something actually being done to tackle real institutional racism? There's I heard another argument that they're removing like Faulty Towers episodes 
or any old like there was talk of removing episodes of I can't remember the TV show but the person in the TV show wasn't doing blackface they were simply wearing like a beauty mask that happened to be black but the context of it had nothing to do with racism and they were talking about removing that and what that does then is it shifts conversations towards that and some people are saying it's a way to make the demands of Black Lives Matter look ridiculous so iconoclasm I'm a fan of iconoclasm as in removing taking statues down taking these symbols down but only if it's happening in in conjunction with actual structural change and this is something that we as Irish people we understand this deeply because we are an iconoclastic people we fucking love taking down statues here's the crack lads every street in the Republic of Ireland used to have a British name when the Republic the 26 counties achieved independence we got rid of all of it we changed the names unless it's in like really posh Protestant areas some of them held on to their fucking like you go around Balls Bridge in Dublin there's a few really posh places and they held on to their names because of who was living there and the money that was living there but the rest of the places like O'Connell Street used to be called Sackville Street that's to remove to, to, to no longer honour Sackville whoever the fuck he is and thank fuck I don't know who he is to no longer honour Sackville and instead to honour Daniel O'Connell the emancipator of Catholics that's iconocla- iconoclasm it's we have won our independence the Brits are gone and we now that they're actually gone we're going to remove all the symbolism that was left behind and we did loads of it and some of it was really fucking like iconoclasm is huge in our culture some of it was really petty um, in a good way in a fun way like there used to be a statue of a very very large statue of Queen Victoria in Dublin outside the Oireachtas the, outside the Irish Parliament and it was a huge Queen Victoria statue and you know why is there a statue of Queen Victoria in Dublin because Dublin was ruled by the British and they understood we need to create an icon of our Queen Queen Victoria to let the fucking paddies know who rules that's what an icon does it's ideological state apparatus if you're an Irish person in Dublin in the 1800s and you have any doubt that you are under the boot of the Brits well there's a statue of fucking Queen Victoria to remind you who's in power Paddy and what happens when you deny that fucking power so when the South got independence in 1922 immediately the Irish were like get that fucking bitch out of here because we in Britain you remember her as Queen Victoria we call her the famine queen she she is the queen of, of, of Britain who oversaw the Irish famine which, which resulted in our population uh, being halved through death and emigration she's responsible for millions and millions of Irish deaths so we refer to her as, as the famine queen and the story of how Queen Victoria's statue was fucked out of Ireland is quite interesting so one thing that would have happened under Queen Victoria's reign is Irish people were shipped to the penal colonies of Van Diemen's land which is Tasmania and also Australia okay Irish people were kind of it wasn't too difficult to get sent to a penal colony during the famine 
when people were starving and dying and all our food was being exported. If an Irish person wanted to do something as simple as try and feed their family and they had no no ability to grow food, no way to afford food, often you'd find an Irish person stealing grain or stealing a sheep or stealing food from their English landlord. Okay, this was very common. The song The Fields of Athen Rye is about someone doing that. So it was very common that someone would engage in a petty crime, stealing bread, stealing grain, stealing an animal to feed their family during a fucking famine. Okay? Often the person was caught because they were near death's door, starving. They were desperate people. They were caught. And the British justice system, the laws, and a law doesn't... Just because something's a law doesn't mean it's fair. The British justice system needed a lot of people in Australia was a new colony and they needed a lot of people in Australia to clear the bush to perform acts of violence against indigenous Australian people to act as enforced labour to build the colony of Australia for the Brits so if you were in the famine and you got caught stealing grain in fucking Wicklow or in Limerick the judge isn't going to turn around and say Ah, oh, Paddy, I noticed three of your children died this year from starvation. I'm going to leave you off for stealing that uh, bag of, of barley. No, the what the judge said was, you've stolen some grain from your landlord. You're a criminal. I sentence you to eight years in Australia, working hard labour in a penal colony. And that's what they did to thousands and thousands of Irish people. So, that happened under Queen Victoria. That's why we call her the Famine Queen. If you went to Australia, you know, you were there under Her Majesty's pleasure. You were shipped to Australia. So what the Irish basically did is... We removed the statue of Queen Victoria. She stayed in a warehouse for years, right? And then someone thought... Let's fucking ship her to Australia. Because Australia is still part of the Commonwealth. And so if you're in Sydney now, listening to this now... Head down to George Street and there's a big sandstone building called the Queen Victoria Building and in front of this building is a giant statue of Queen Victoria that was once in Dublin. And as an a, as, a, as a piece of... I, I love that. It's iconoclasm in that it's the destroying of an icon, the removal and destroying of an icon. But that's performance art. That's not simply busting the statue up or destroying it someone had a good old think and sent Queen Victoria on a ship to Van Diemen's Land on a symbolic journey and nobody knows that but if you're Irish and you're in Australia and I'm guessing there's Irish people because loads of us are still in Australia to work there and I guarantee you there's Irish people who work near George's Street and they hate having to walk past that statue because they know what she represents. So if you're one of those Irish people and you walk past Queen Vic on Georgia Street, know that she's there in a, as she she's there. She had to embark on, on a journey of shame on behalf of your ancestors. Think of it that way. That's not a proud statue for the Aussies to go, our Queen Vic. No 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 no. She was taken out of fucking Dublin when the South got independence and sent on a ship to represent the journey that was so many fucking Irish people did to try and uh, feed their families.
So that for me there, that that's such beautiful poetic iconoclasm, you know? In 1922, in Galway, there was a statue of a chap called Lord Dunkelin, who was like Galway, Galway's in the west of Ireland, so the west of Ireland was absolutely, has always been, now Galway's pretty, Galway's doing alright for itself now, but the west of Ireland has traditionally been very barren, poor place. So Lord Dunkelin was this Anglo-Irish landlord who had a huge amount of wealth in the area. His brother was an absentee landlord, which was someone who owned a huge amount of land and plantations with people renting on it and being absolutely exploited. So the land, the landlord class were hated in Ireland because they were seen as parasites. So in 1922, the people of Galway rooted up this statue of Lord Dunkelin and dragged it through the, st- the streets of Galway playing fucking tunes as this act of performance and they fucked him into the fucked him into the ocean and as they fucked him into the ocean they said let it go boys and may the devil and all rotten landlordism go with it and they fucking they played a song I'm forever blowing bubbles as it sunk to the bottom of the sea we also have a tradition of violent iconoclasm you know the Queen Victoria thing sending her off to Australia is beautiful and poetic fucking your man there into the sea in Galway there's a poetry to that and a musicality to it but also as I mentioned you know Sackville Street now O'Connell Street we had Nelson's Pillar on O'Connell Street well into the 60s this huge pillar in the centre of O'Connell Street in Dublin and it is a pillar, and atop the pillar is, or was, a statue to Admiral Nelson. Again, a reminder of British imperialism up above atop a pillar, looking down on the people of Dublin to tell them, we're in power, and you better not challenge it, because we're up on pedestals. That's what icons do, that's what statues do. Ideological state apparatus. And it became quite offensive to a lot of Irish people, for Nelson's Pillar to still be there. It's like, we've changed the names of the fucking streets. Why is Nelson's Pillar still there? So in 1966, and the irony actually as well of, of so in 1966, which was the 50th, um, the 50th year anniversary of the 1916 Rising, which is, if, if you're not from Ireland, the 1916 Rising was an armed rebellion that happened in Dublin in 1916 and it was hugely important in the south of Ireland becoming independent but in 1916 Nelson's Pillar which is near the GPO where 1916 happened where the the May 1916 rising happened Nelson's Pillar actually protected the 1916 rebels from British gunfire ironically because it was as they were escaping the side of the GPO to go down Moore Street Nelson's Pillar right there stopped a bunch of bullets from hitting them so there's a great irony about how Nelson's Pillar protected the 1916 rebels but in 1966 it was still up and one night it was the same night that Bob Dylan was gigging Bob Dylan would have been at the height of his fucking career in 1966 that was Highway 61 revisited or Blonde and Blonde he was gigging in Dublin that night and I think the gig he heard it in his hotel room 
I'm not 100% sure about that, but Dylan mentioned it afterwards. He heard this huge explosion. The IRA blew up Nelson's Pillar in 1966 on the 50th anniversary of the 1916 Rising. Blew, blew it to fucking smithereens. Put bits of it all over the city streets. No one was injured. But that's violent iconoclasm. We have, we have subversive iconoclasm where an icon isn't, you know, an icon of British power isn't destroyed or taken down, but a new icon is created that acts in defiance of the British crown. I'm talking about the free Derry corner up in Derry in the north of Ireland, which is still under control of Britain, technically. Um, They didn't get to take down statues or change names of streets in the way that free state people did. So up in in Derry in, I think this was the 60s, if not the early 70s, the areas of the Bogside and the Cregan, which are hugely Catholic areas in Derry, because of violence from the British Army, from the British police, from unionist communities, because of violence against the Catholic communities, and in a similar way to... We said the Black Lives Matter protest at the moment. The Catholic community basically couldn't rely upon the, prote- the police to protect them. Simple as that. The police were violent, brutalistic aggressors. Okay? This is the same community who, in 1973, British soldiers shot 27 unarmed innocent protesters who were protesting for their civil rights. 14 people shot dead, murdered by British soldiers. So, the Free Derry Corner... It's just the side of a house that says you are now entering Free Derry. And it was set up as like a mini autonomous zone that even though it's in the north of Ireland, which was under British rule, that the Catholic community could have this little area, which was a no-go zone, where the police weren't effective, the British army weren't effective, they weren't allowed in, and the IRA policed its own community. And that's what Free Derry is. And that's that wall... And the murals as well, the Republican murals, that's iconoclasm. Because, yes, it's creating an icon, but it's creating an icon in defiance of British power. So that's an act of iconoclasm. And the Brits understood it, because they tried to take down the Free Derry fucking corner several times. They tried to bulldoze it. Right now, the Free Derry model is being, is inspiring. In America, there's a place called Chaz, the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone, which is... In Seattle, Black Lives Matter protests have taken over an area and said, there's, a, there's even a sign at the front which is the exact copy of the Free Derry sign that says you are now entering Free Capitol Hill. They've, they've have an awareness of what happened in Derry and said, the police do not work for us, the police are aggressors in a system that wants to kill us, so we're going to try and create our own little autonomous zone where we can self-police, because what you're doing is not policing, it's aggressive. And yeah, right now, the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone, ongoing, are taking inspiration from Free Derry, taking inspiration from subversive Irish iconoclasm. So in part two, I'm going to talk about what I mentioned, Barack Obama and an act of iconoclasm in the Oval Office, right? Um, But before I do that, let's have the... Not the ocarina pause, the shaker pause. So I'm going to provide a little bit of a pause. If you're new to the podcast, 
um, I have a pause halfway through so that an advert can be digitally inserted by Acast and I don't want to shock or surprise you. Head over to Hulu this March where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie All of Us Strangers starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series We Were the Lucky Ones with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. So I'm going to play an instrument for a little while. And you may or may not hear an advert. Here we go. That was the shaker pause. You may or may not have heard an advert. So this podcast is 100% independent and it is supported by you, the listener, via the Patreon page. Um, How it works really is, look, right now, society's returning back to normal. Lots of people are going back to work. I'm not, okay? I'm an entertainer. Entertainers are going to be the last people who can return to work in the coronavirus pandemic. I don't know when I can do a gig again, all right? It, it could be a long, long time away. So I've lost a huge portion of my income. My only source of income now is this podcast and the pa- Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash the blind by podcast. So if you're listening to this podcast, if I'm entertaining you every week, all I'm asking, please pay me for the work that I'm doing, okay? This is my job. It's my career. The Patreon income is how I pay my bills. Please pay me for the work that I'm doing. Uh, all I'm asking for is a, a cup of coffee or a pint once a month. That's it. Once a month. Patreon.com forward slash the blind by podcast. If you can't afford that, you don't have to chill out. Someone else is going to pay it for you. All right. But if you can afford that, if you can afford me to give me a coffee or a pint once a month, you would be doing me such a massive favour and you're paying me for the work that I'm doing. It's a fantastic system. It gives me security in my life. And the Patreon is the only source of income that I have now. I've no diversified income. It's hugely important. Um, also as well, once a month, I pick, one of, I pick a patron at random and I send them in the post a one-of-a-kind hand drawing just for them that's signed. No one else will have this, a one-of-a-kind hand drawing. So think of it almost like a raffle. If you become a patron of the podcast, there's a chance that you will get a one-of-a-kind original piece of art from me. Um, So have a consider of that. And thank you to everyone who is a patron as well. Thank you so much to everybody. 
it really means an awful lot to me. It keeps me going. It keeps the podcast regular. Um, I can't stress that enough. Thank you so much. Okay, moving on. Of course, like and subscribe to the podcast, right? Leave Write a, a pleasurable review of the podcast, all these things. Recommend it to a friend. Come join me on Twitch, twitch.tv forward slash the blind by podcast. Look at me live streaming several times a week. Th- th- these are other ways that you can just be sound to me if you enjoy the work that I'm doing. So the big thing that got me wanting to do this particular podcast on iconoclasm and removing icons and statues and what it means to power was obviously the news, like I mentioned, a lot of talk of statues. But one instance that happened in 2008 when Obama first went into the Oval Office and I haven't seen it being fucking mentioned in the fucking news. So what happened was when George W. Bush became president of the United States, which was in, was it 2000, was it? I think it was about 2000, but George W. Bush anyway, he liked Winston Churchill. He viewed George W. Bush, who was a fucking terrible president, president, an absolute prick who invaded Iraq in a legal war. I mean, Jesus, look, the, the fella looks like a saint now compared to Trump, but George W. Bush was pretty bad. And he liked to think of himself as an anti-fascist. And as a result of this, he admired Winston Churchill. So he got his hands on a bust of Winston Churchill that was made in 1946, head and shoulders, and he had it placed into the Oval Office for the entire term of his presidency. Then in 2008, Barack Obama becomes president. And America and Britain have always had what's known as this special relationship a very strong allyship and a support of each other, right? And it's a huge thing in American and British diplomacy. This special relationship has kind of fallen to shit a bit underneath Donald Trump. It really is at at the the lowest it's ever been since World War II because Trump is so insular. Um, It might slightly improve now because post-Brexit, the Brits want to get a lot of American bleached chicken and do some trade deals, so that might improve. But... The special relationship between Britain and the US, which was very much solidified in World War Two, okay? Something like Churchill's bust in the White House is a big deal. That's a huge deal. And when George W. Bush put it in there, it's the iconography of that statement. The icon of Churchill says, I am the President of the United States of America and here I have a former British Prime Minister... In the fucking Oval Office. So therefore his values represent American values. And American icon, uh, the icon of America is quote unquote democracy. It's not fucking democracy. It's brutal capitalism. But America uses all these icons of prosperity and freedom and capitalism. To just be a, a modern form of colonialism. You know. But anyway... Putting Churchill's bust in the White House is a big fucking deal for British and American relationships and it acts as an an icon throughout the Bush administration and this icon says things are pretty good between the Brits and the US. We're good pals. So when Obama gets in and chooses to take it out of the Oval Office, that's a big move. And it frightened people in Britain. It frightened Britain going, fuck do you mean he's after taking Churchill out of the Oval Office? Fuck did he do that for? 
and the Brits were really bothered about it and they sent him over they sent over a a pen holder right that was made out of a British ship and a British anti-slavery ship from like the 1700s and they sent Obama this pen holder so that at least he'd have this one tiny little measly icon of British relations in the Oval Office but the British you know not really being able to smell the stink of their own farts and absolutely believing that Winston Churchill is this utter god of anti-fascism that he represents everything that the British Britain stands for and you saw this last week because the protesters were coming for the Churchill statue in London the main Winston Churchill statue people wanted to take it down and if you allow Churchill to fall in Britain with Brexit and coronavirus that type of iconoclasm could be so iconic that it could lead to a revolution. You can't allow... You allow Churchill to fall in London, then anything it's a free-for-all. That's the power of icons. Much like Churchill himself understood, during World War II, during the Blitz, Churchill, uh, when, Brit- when, when London was burning under, under fucking German bombs... Churchill said to the the head fire marshal in London if St Paul's Cathedral goes on fire I will have you executed Churchill understood that yes London can be bombed to bits but if if the dome of St Paul's Cathedral is allowed to burn then he loses control of society to the point that the head fireman would be executed if it happened so they firemen in London during the Blitz worked night and day to make sure that St. Paul's Cathedral, the icon of St. Paul's Cathedral, would not fall because what this would have meant for the British people. And we saw it last week with them utter defence, putting a box around Winston Churchill's statue so that protesters couldn't take it down because of what that would have meant. Like, you have to remember in, in 2000, Winston Churchill was voted by the people of Britain the greatest ever a British person, the greatest ever Britain. He is seen in Britain as the great anti-fascist. The British believe that Winston Churchill beat Hitler. Okay? The Yanks, well, yeah, the Yanks would say, say that as well. Like, George W. Bush is like, Winston Churchill is an anti-fascist and I want his bust in the Oval Office because his values represent my values. So why the fuck would Barack Obama remove it from the Oval Office? What if I told you that Winston Churchill put Barack Obama's grandfather into a concentration camp? Because that's a fact. Winston Churchill was an absolute prick. Now you don't have to tell me that because I'm Irish. I know. Winston Churchill was responsible for overseeing and commanding the Black and Tans. The Black and Tans, if you're listening from outside of Ireland, were... um, a British force within Ireland during our War of Independence who operated like the the SS, the Nazi SS. They're, they were a, a breed of soldier whose sole purpose and goal was to murder and terrorise Irish civilians. Not even to engage the IRA. To kill, murder and maim Irish civilians as a kind of ideological fear-based war against the IRA. Like, Winston Churchill is seen as this massive 
anti-fascist, but we don't see him like that here in Ireland. We see we see the man as an absolute, utter violent fascist who tried to eradicate us. Not just the Irish. He was a racist. Winston Churchill was an absolute racist. And you can't say, oh, he was old school, it was different back then. No, 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 no. Winston Churchill had incredibly racist views and he used these racist views to enact genocide and military power and might over people who he believed to be inferior, like Hitler did. Simple as that. Here's a quote from Winston Churchill, 1937. I do not admit, for instance, that a great wrong has been done to the Red Indians of America or the black people of Australia. I do not admit that a wrong has been done to these people by the fact that a stronger race, a higher grade race, a more worldly wise race, to put it that way, has come in and taken their place. Okay, so that is, that's racism. That's basically, we're Brits, we're white, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. We're, the British Empire exists because we're genetically superior to the rest of the world and therefore it's okay so don't complain to me about colonialism don't complain to me about what we did to your country we're fucking better we're just better people so that's why we did it that's like that's hitler shit lads that's hitler shit that's what that was hitler hitler was straight up like we are the aryans we're fucking class we're gonna take everything we're gonna eradicate them because we are the chosen people were genetically inferior and we deserve the earth. And Hitler was straight... He even he even gestured toward the Brits and said, the Brits might be our enemies, but genetically they're the same shit, you know? So we won't do it to them as much, but we're Aryans, we're going to take over the world. Churchill did, in his actions, did the same fucking shit. And in his views, backed it up. So that's why in Ireland we view Church- Churchill as a Hitler. And that's why when I see the British people iconoclastically wanting to take his fucking statue down I go brilliant do it fucking do it finally he was a huge proponent of using gas to kill people Um, not only not only like the evilness of using gas as a weapon of war but specifically it being okay depending on who he was using it on there's this old school British uh, attitude especially in the first world war when military technology grew kind of faster than the human brain could understand warfare and the British had weapons like gas and in particular machine guns and the British always felt pre-World War One, machine guns are only okay if you use it on quote-unquote savages you would never turn a machine gun on a white enemy you couldn't do that it'd be ungentlemanly but you can use it on Zulus if you want you can use it on African savages because we don't view them as as humans and in 1919 Churchill wrote a memo and he's look he straight up said this is a quote I am strongly in favour of using poison gas against uncivilised tribes there's your there's your hero lads there's there's Winston Churchill, the great anti-fascist, the the icon of anti-fascism on which Britain is built, the greatest Britain. I am strongly in favour of using poison gas against uncivilised tribes. And you can match that up with what he said several years later about him simply believing certain races to be inferior. That's Hitler shit, lads. You want to have a strong argument 
to not conflate the two because it sounds the exact same. That's fucking fascism. One of the most damning things regarding Churchill, and I'm 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 hoping English and British people are listening to this because you don't you don't learn this shit in school. You learn about the icon of Churchill. You learn about Churchill as the anti-fascist great grandfather of Britain who. You know, if you want to become a squatty or you want to join the army, you do it for Churchill and you follow in his footsteps. Churchill is responsible for the death of three million people in India during the Bengal famine of 1943. So 1943 would have been near the end of World War II. India was a British colony as such. Britain was ruling India. And this huge famine broke out. And... The, the shitty, the horrible thing about the Bengal famine, and for me as an Irish person, is it's like you killed four million people in Ireland in the 18, 1840s, okay? Did you not learn a lesson from, you exported all our food, like, you're really going to do it again in India? And they did. The, the, the Irish famine happened in India uh, 100 years later, almost to the button. 1943 the Bengal famine the British all the rice which was the staple crop in India was being grown and exported for British troops which exacerbated the famine and then huge amount of imported wheat that came in from Australia which could have been used to feed the starving people during a massive famine and Churchill oversaw all of this it wasn't used to feed the people of India it was kept in storage to feed uh, British soldiers and it never never it just rotted so Churchill's responsible for the death of 3 million people and the one thing about Churchill which is less severe but something I wish British people knew Churchill wasn't okay fair enough he fucking fought Hitler and he led Britain and blah 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 Churchill didn't do it for the people of Britain Churchill did it for the rich people of Britain Churchill was an absolute fucking capitalist and he was anti-unions anti-socialism in 1910, uh, I think it was miners in Liverpool went on strike and they wanted the former union. I mentioned earlier about, you know, the, the history of workers' rights and how they had to be fought for. So these miners went on strike and said, we're not working in the mines. Churchill sent in the army, he sent the British army in on British civilians who were protesting for better quality working conditions the soldiers got out of hand and they killed two miners so Churchill is willing to put the British army on the poor people of Britain and two of them were killed this man's a prick so then you're left with the question you know all these reasons Barack Obama in the Oval Office going I don't want you know is he thinking I don't want to stare at this prick all day because Obama's smart Obama knows his history Bam is a really educated, smart person. And you're thinking, is Obama, like, is he aware of the Bengal famine? Is he aware of the striking workers? Uh, is he taking this moral point of, you know, I can't have this... No, he's not, because, like, the Obama administration... Okay, Barack Obama, very intelligent, brilliant speaker. He... Obama, the greatest thing Obama ever did in my opinion, is he made the world feel safe. When when Barack Obama went, like, we'd all love to hear Obama talking about coronavirus. We'd love to, you know, he had this ability 
to communicate and make us feel like there's a responsible adult in charge I can relax. We don't have that at the moment with Trump. But Obama's main... It was performative. Obama, like, look at his history of drone strikes, man. He was fucking... Sending drones, like, bombing an entire wedding in Yemen just to get one person in Al-Qaeda, you know? So, I don't believe Obama was disgusted by what Churchill was doing because Obama is the leader of an evil empire too. But... Here's the thing. Obama's grandfather, his name was Hussein Onyanga Obama. And Hussein was a Kenyan man. He was a British soldier. He had, like, Britain, Kenya was owned by Britain. Kenya was a British colony, okay? And he had fought for the British as an Allied soldier during, I think, both fucking world wars. Yeah, Obama's grandfather fought in both world wars for the British and by 1949 he was a cook he was about 50 at this point he was a cook but what happened right is after World War 2 Britain ruled Kenya and Kenya started going we wouldn't mind a bit of fucking independence it became known as the, the Mau Mau Uprising and the Mau Mau Uprising it'd be a little bit like the 1916 Rising. It was kind of a short, explosive act of rebellion and only 32 British colonists were killed. But the Brits had seen this shit in Ireland before and they just went nuts and completely overreacted to it. So the Brits are terrified of, right, the Kenyans are going to rebel, they're going to overthrow colonial powers, what do we do? Like, a lot of shit that the Brits did, they'd already practised it in Ireland. We're, we're the closest fucking neighbour. They've controlled those for 800 years. They've practised a lot of it. So, what they did was, the Brits kind of identified what Kenyans would be a danger. Well, certainly the ones that were in the army fighting with us because we showed them all of their techniques. You have to remember, in Ireland in 1922, the likes of, of General Tom Barry down in West Cork, Tom Barry, like invented what is modern guerrilla warfare against the Brits. Tom Barry was a former British soldier who fought for the Brits in Iraq and he used what the Brits had taught them to organise flying columns to fight the British at home. So they'd already seen sometimes our former colonial soldiers get wise and realise that we're actually pricks and use our own tactics against us and that's really dangerous. So the Brits figured, what if this happens in Kenya? Okay, let's round them up, round them up. So the British rounded up 80,000 Kenyans who they believed to be a threat. And this is what happened, and this doesn't get spoken about. The British had concentration camps. Huge concentration camps in Kenya. Like Hitler had. And whose idea was this? Churchill. Churchill. Winston Churchill, the great anti-fascist, had concentration camps in Kenya where 80,000 people were sent into. And these concentration camps, they it was industrialised torture. Like, like a concentration camp is industrial torture and suffering, often with a weird sexual element to it. And Hussein Obama, Barack Obama's grandfather, 
spent, I think it was four years in one of Winston Churchill's concentration camps where on a daily on a daily basis he had his testicles squeezed by iron rods. British soldiers were were sexually torturing him for fucking years in a British concentration camp in Kenya. And Winston Churchill's Kenyan concentration camps, they killed 35, sorry, no, 25,000 people. And these were like, he just, they picked 80,000 men who they thought might be a threat, often ex-soldiers. These people hadn't done any crimes and they put 80,000 people in here, tortured them sexually, industrialised concentration camp violence and the torture was so much that 25,000 died. So when Barack Obama gets into the Oval Office, when he sees Winston Churchill, that's what he thinks. Why the fuck wouldn't he? His fucking grandfather. The, the man who fucking had rods poked into my granddad's balls every single day for four years. And like, I want him on my fucking desk. Now I'm the most powerful person in the world. Not a fucking hope. So Obama... The legend was is that Obama sent it back to Britain. He didn't. He just took it out of the office. But that was that was iconoclasm. He removed like taking the bust of Winston Churchill from the president's office and moving it out into the hall, that's a big one. In terms of iconoclasm, that's pretty big. Because it threatens the special relationship. So I believe Obama did it. Now Obama's a Obama is a very diplomatic individual. Obama will never say a word that's remotely emotional. He's very clever. You'll never catch Obama out. So Obama has been challenged on it and asked, and he's just said, "No, I love Winston Churchill. No, 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 no. Winston Churchill was a great man. Um, I moved it out because, look, I wanted to make room for a new." I think he, he replaced it with Martin Luther King. And he just said, look, you can't have an office with too many busts in there. I wanted to put Martin Luther King in there instead. Um, I've no problems with Winston Churchill. Didn't mention anything about his grandfather. But, like, come on. Come on. He tortured his fucking grandfather in a concentration camp. Obama's not going to say that. He's too diplomatic. But that's what happened. That's what happened. And moved it out into the hallway. No one brought that up. In the past week, fucking Churchill's statue being encased, people wanting to rip it down. Brits going, why would you hurt Winston Churchill? What did Winston Churchill do? He hated Hitler. He beat Hitler. And to, like, there was protesters protecting, they were protecting Churchill's statue, right? These far right cunts. Protecting Churchill's statue saying, we're protecting Winston Churchill from the protesters. He defeated Hitler. While while this while they were also doing Zeke Nazi signs at the police. So these hooligan far right were doing Hitler fucking Zeke while saying we're defending Churchill because uh, he defeated Hitler. That's what happens when Britain lies to its people continually through the education system by making someone like Churchill an icon. Churchill was Hitler. To Irish people, Churchill is Hitler. To Kenyan people, Churchill is Hitler. To uh, people in India, Churchill is fucking Hitler. That doesn't mean I'm diminishing uh, what Hitler did or Mussolini or anyone like that. I'm just saying that's how we see it. 
and I just find it odd no one brought it up. So that's that's this week's podcast. That's what this week's podcast is about. All right. Mind yourselves. Be compassionate towards yourself. Be compassionate towards others. Don't be acting like coronavirus is gone just because everyone else is. Wear a mask. Keep others safe. Yart. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series We Were the Lucky Ones with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.